0: We're going to be in the book of Titus this morning, so you can start turning over to the book of Titus. Um, and we'll get there in just a moment. So I hope you're here last week. Chris shared a really powerful message on the good news of the gospel. Um, I hope you were encouraged by it, just like I was. My prayer for today is um, as we look at this passage in Titus, um, that it's really a helpful response to this gospel message that we heard so clearly last week. We're just going to examine. Um, How this real saving grace affects our lives and uh, what it should compel us to then do once we hear it and receive it. So as you're getting over to Titus, we're going to be in chapter two. I know there's so many chapters in Titus, so don't get lost. Um, We'll get get to that in just a moment. So um, a couple of years ago, uh, Blythe was very pregnant with our third kiddo, Ford, and shortly after that, I was about to turn 30 and don't groan, but I was having a really hard time with that number at the time. I don't know, it was hard. Um, I think partly had to do with the fact that um, around that time I was at like the highest weight I had ever been and probably just the most out of shape I had ever felt, which was probably not helped with the fact that I ended most of my evenings with what I believe still to be some of the most important food groups, which is um, a sleeve of Oreos or a bowl of cereal, yes, no, oh gosh. Okay, they're in the food pyramid, I promise, somewhere in there. Um, But Blythe knew me well enough. She knew how I felt about how I was feeling. Um, So she took it upon herself just to help me get the ball rolling. And so for Father's Day that year, she got me my very first gym membership. And she just gave me the freedom to figure out my schedule for that. Um, So there I was. My name was officially on the membership. Um, I was on this list. I had access to the necessary equipment, but not too surprising, I didn't immediately physically look any different the day I got this membership. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it took, it took years of learning different workouts, machines, and muscle groups. Um, I had to then avoid those temptations of desserts and those unhealthy habits that I had. But over the course of that training and learning, I actually ended up losing around 45 pounds at that time. Yes, thank you, gained it all back. No. But there were a lot of setbacks and there were a lot of restarts. And now, honestly, I'm, I'm just kind of getting back into it after the black hole that was 2020. So I'm, I'm having to relearn and restart some of those things. But it made me think, why is it that so often we believe that all it takes is just simply having our name on the membership to get us into shape? And why do we so often forget that there is work that is required of us to get to that point. You see, God has given us an immeasurably greater gift, and that's the gift of grace. And while the moment that we accept that gift of salvation through grace, the Bible does say that we are a new creation. Today we're going to look at what God's active grace means for our life and what our response to that grace should be. And we're going to see that our response is going to require some work on our part. So get ready to work, right? So our main point for this morning is this. I respond to God's saving grace by training in godly obedience. So just to give you a little context of uh, Titus here, um, leading up to our passage that we're reading from, Paul is writing to Titus. He's laying out some doctrinal teaching. He's giving... Qualifications for elders, you know, he said, you know, be hospitable, disciplined, not violent. So if you see Phil and Chris just like duking it out in the parking lot, just like let us know, because we need to work on some things. Um, uh, we can wait to see who wins first. But he's also laying out details of what the lives of the people should look like. So he's speaking to older men and women. He's speaking to the younger generations and to the slaves of that time, and all of this leads to his reason why they are to live this way starting in verse 11 of chapter 2. I'm just going to read the whole of this passage so we can get um, just an an idea of what we're reading today, and then we'll break that down. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we're going to focus first just on on verse 11 here. So our, our, our first point this morning is this, God's grace brings salvation. So we see, Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we see the same meaning for the word appeared in 1 Timothy 1.10, where it says, Paul re- referred to the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see this word uh, throughout the Old Testament, too, when God appeared to his people. He was making himself clearly known to all of them. And we also see that this physical visibility comes in the form of God's Son. So here is the grace of God appearing or uh, becoming visible through the coming of Jesus Christ. He's bringing, or other translations may say, offering salvation for all people. And this is significant in the fact that this grace being offered must still be received by those it's being offered to. It's also significant That's being offered to all people. This this is a big deal. That the grace of God appeared with the coming of Jesus and through this offering, all people can receive this saving grace. Thank the Lord for that. Now, of course, this this doesn't mean that all people are saved or will be saved. The Bible is very clear that there are two separate final destinations for all people. That those who through God's grace, believe in Jesus as Savior, will go to heaven. And those who don't believe in Christ will pay the ultimate uh, eternal separation from God in hell. But good news is that no sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. Amen. See, Paul himself, the writer here, is famous for being a persecutor of the church. He called himself the foremost sinner in 1 Timothy. And he experienced God's grace through the, cross, through the cross. So if the foremost sinner can find mercy, guess what? So can you. Of course, we, we experience hindrances to receiving that grace, right? And I think um, one of those major exper- uh, hindrances that we experience um, is our bent towards self or self-righteousness. I mean, think about you don't need salvation Unless you're lost, or really you recognize that you're lost, right? If you think you're doing fine on your own, if you, you think you're going to be able to make it with just a little bit more of your own effort, you're not going to cry out for a Savior to deliver you. But God's grace brings salvation, and I must respond. This, this gospel grace, it brings salvation, it reveals and offers it to sinners and it ensures it to those who believe. It's salvation from sin and wrath, from death and hell, but we already see that a response is needed from us to that grace. So if God is bringing or offering this grace, we have to decide what a response to that saving grace will be. And we see that through this gift of grace, there's a challenge. So um, our next point this morning is God's grace trains me In godliness. So in verses 12 through 14, he's giving us kind of a list of things, um, some expectations of what grace should accomplish in our lives. And I like this word training. You think about this. I I talked about that kind of in in my uh, training for working out. Um, Some of you may know Michael Melvin. Um, There he is. Happy birthday, by the way. It's his birthday today. Um, He's probably just one of the kindest people you will ever meet, Um, and I've got the privilege of getting to know him over the last two years uh, as a really good friend, and then through our young adults ministry that Blythe and I lead, which, by the way, did you know we have a really awesome young adults ministry here at Harvest? That's right. We just have a really cool group of young people who love the Lord and love God's Word. So if you haven't got to know any of them, I highly encourage you to get to know them because they're just really great people. But uh, Michael is a really skilled athlete, um, he's been playing soccer really like for most of his life and really seriously through like age 12 through college. Um, and so now he's, he's taking on this new challenge in his life, and I, I didn't ask like, what he would actually call it, but I'm calling it advanced running, I don't know. <laughs> so I ran the Tough Mudder with him and Chris a couple years ago, I think we got some, yeah, there's us all muddy. Um, And so we ran like a little under like 10 miles with like 20-something obstacles, and he was very kind enough to run at my pace the entire time. But when I say he's a runner, I want to put this into perspective for all of us. Um, He's currently training for a 100-mile run. Yeah, no, I did not misspeak. That is a 100-mile run. And so when I talked to him this week, um, he told me on average he runs six to seven days per week and around 60 to 70 miles per week for his training. And he's taking some time to run um, like 8 to 10 full marathons, just like through the park, just on his own, like no big deal, whatever. That's what normal people do, (laughs) they just run full marathons. So this event, this 100-mile run, can take around like 20 to 24 hours to complete, just in total. So I asked him what it takes to get to this place physically uh, maybe mentally too, um, to, to be able to endure something so taxing. And so he said, you have to study the course. You have to know what kind of terrain you're dealing with, what kind of obstacles and difficulties you'll face. So you have to understand what's coming ahead. But you also have to take good care of your body. You have to feed it well. So it's not, it's not just reading about the race, and it's not just, just running a lot. You have to teach your body how to endure the physical demands. You have to educate yourself on, best, on the best approach to avoid injury and to gain endurance. He then has to say no to any harmful practices or habits. But more than that, he has to say yes to physical nourishment, the things that really care for his body. So he avoids what's destructive and provides what's beneficial. But he told me at the end of the day, he really, he just wants to finish the race strong. Isn't that that what we want for our life? Is to finish and finish this race strong in this life. And we don't want to go limping over the finish line just because we didn't put in the work that's called for us to, to complete, that's needed in our life. And grace does this. Grace instructs us that through Christ's appearing and the Holy Spirit's tutoring, Grace teaches us to say no to the ungodliness and the worldly passions that we'll face in this world. And when we believe in Christ, we then become enrolled in his school of living. And so we don't just wish for change to happen. We don't simply hope that it might occur. We must say no to those behaviors and attitudes and desires that are opposed to God. Then, we can learn to live self-controlled and godly lives. So in this passage, it's giving us kind of I just want to break down some of these things that we see that grace is training us in godliness. So I said the first one is to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So the salvation he brings, it's not only about forgiveness, but thankfully that is part of it, but it's also about transformation. So as recipients of God's grace, we are then empowered to live in a new way in our life. And when you've experienced the true grace of God, the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ, the heart response should be of motivation to please God. So the more you read God's word, the more you understand his calling in your life, the more you understand what kind of life is calling you to live you learn what in your life is then in direct disobedience to Him and we can then with confidence say no to ungodliness. So we talk about ungodliness. This, this can look like a person who lives just a direct life of immorality or evil. Um, but this can also just be seen in someone's life who just simply has no room for God in it. You know, they, they live a life of self and with no thought or concern for where God fits into it. And certainly not Not even thinking about allowing him to completely take control. That's not even on the radar. And we see that grace also trains us to say no to worldly passions. In 1 John 2.16, it says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, grace trains us to say no to these things. Because God's grace is far better than anything the world can offer us. I hope you believe that. The next thing we see that grace trains us in is to live a self controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. I think it's important um, that we see this concept of self control, because I think this further drives the point that we have an active role in response to God's saving grace that through Christ's complete work on the cross in our place, we are graciously given the gift of salvation, and then upon accepting this gift, we are called to further action of this self-discipline. And we are also graciously given the help uh, of the discerning guidance of the Holy Spirit. We see this upright living involves all the things that are respectable and good. But Paul's inclusion of a godly life And he takes these qualities just beyond the the possibly ambiguous uh, morality of self, the things that we deem are good, and it connects our behavior with our faith in God. Those two things cannot be separated, should not be separated. Because a Christian's life should point toward God. It's, It's not enough to just say no to ungodliness, which we should, but we must then begin saying yes to that self-control, to living upright, and to living a godly life. And you'll probably notice that this will oftentimes, most of the time, just be completely countercultural, right? Uh, you know, the idea of living your best life, which sounds nice, but usually just means you know, doing what makes you happy without regard for really anything else. So then we live out our truths without regard for anything but what satisfies our own self. But when you experience God's grace, when you say no to ungodliness, this should then compel us to desire a life of self-control. That means that we don't succumb to these worldly impulses and passions that tell us this is what you need. This is what will make you happy. This is what will fulfill you. We righteously conform to God's standards of conduct in our own life and in relation to others. Uh, A godly life where we are devoted to Him, where we confess our sins, where we outwardly love Him. That's the life that we want to seek after. And we do this also not in isolation, not hidden from the world, but as it says, in the present age. So we do all of this while still living in the sinful world around us. We do this so that others may see our love and devotion to God They'll see His grace lived out in our lives, and prayerfully, they'll come to experience that saving grace for themselves. And the third way I want to point out from this passage is that it says, the grace trains us to look behind and to look ahead. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, Christ's first appearing was in grace, bringing salvation. And His second appearing will be in glory, bringing salvation to His people, but judgment to those who have not believed in him. So the second coming is this blessed hope that we read of for those who know him because then we will fully experience all of the blessings of his salvation. Now, during uh, President Carter's time in office, he did something occasionally that was kind of pretty unusual for a sitting president. He would stay in the homes of just regular American citizens. And I don't know how these people got picked um, but his goal ultimately was just to send a message that he was just like everybody else. Except, you know, with all the security clearance and, people, you know, but totally just like all of us. Now now imagine if the president was planning a trip to your house next week. My guess is you'd probably be doing just like some serious spring cleaning You want to make it look nice? Now, This isn't like, not me, I didn't vote for him. Not not one of these things. Just go with me with this scenario. Whoever, anyway, whoever you picture. Uh, But imagine your home is gonna be televised during this visit for all of the country to see. My guess would be that you wouldn't just kind of walk through a quick pass and throw stuff under the rugs or just say like, you know what, this is good. I'm okay with everybody seeing like all my stuff. No course not. You would be preparing ahead of an, for an arrival that you knew would hold a great significance and would reveal a lot of your life to everyone else. We also know that someone far greater than a president is coming, right? So those who have experienced God's grace, we eagerly look forward to His coming, and it's a motivation for us to take inventory of our life, and we clear away the sin that for far too long, has resided in us. So we look ahead. We also look back at the cross, the first appearance of Jesus coming in grace where he gave himself for us to redeem us. We look back at this ultimate demonstration of his love, and as we look back, it, it should grip our hearts. And that reflection of that past grace produces godliness in us. So first, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And this word redeem would have gotten a lot of attention at that time, certainly from um, the slaves, because this was a word used for buying a slave out of the market to give them their freedom in biblical times. And just think, for us, before we met Christ, we were all slaves to sin. But He paid the redeeming price in his own blood to free us from bondage to sin. Second, Christ gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people for his own possession. So first we see in verse 12, um, there's a focus on our need to purify ourselves and the work that is to be done um, to do that. But verse 14 focuses on Christ's purifying us through his blood. So he bought us out of slavery, he washed us clean, and now we belong to him as his possession. And he prizes us more than anyone prizes a valuable treasure because he paid for us with his blood. That's not just buying some random thing. This is spilling his blood for us. One of the reasons we take communion, just like we did today, is that it reminds us of these truths. So we examine ourselves and we confess any known sins. And as we think on this great sacrifice that our Savior made, it then draws our hearts toward him in love and devotion. It makes us long for the day of his appearing in glory. We have a hope as we look ahead to the second appearance of Jesus coming because of the salvation we have received So our lives are then transfixed on the hope we have in our great God. So this idea of just our response to grace and training us in godliness it also brought uh, me to the story of the adulterous woman in the book of John, um, chapter 8, a very familiar story. Um, And I'm going to be starting in verse 3. You can follow up on the screen here. Let me just read all this to you. So it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Powerful story. So here's Jesus teaching in the temple. The Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery and they want to test him as though that has ever worked out for them, ever. But they try. And we get this really well-known response from Jesus. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, right? And I was moved by Jesus' final words with the woman. So now it's, it's just the two of them. And she's face to face with Jesus. She's caught in her sin. She's embarrassed She's nearly executed, a lot of fear, and Jesus looks at this broken, shamed woman and simply asks, has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. And With these final words, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, he charges her to say no to the life of sin and pursue self-controlled, godly life. I believe that this message is a profound, culturally influential, expectation-defying, powerful story of the grace found in Jesus. Because according to the law, she was guilty, and the punishment was death. But face-to-face with Jesus, she was given the gift of grace. But she wasn't just merely sent on her way Jesus gave her a charge to go and from now on sin no more. So Jesus met her right there in her sin and pouring out all of his grace onto her, he withheld the condemnation and punishment that awaited her. But through this grace was given not only the opportunity but the expectation that a life of sin was now dead to her. That she was to go away and cut the sin out of her life, to remove it, to flee from it and live in this sin no more. A fully experienced saving grace doesn't simply pull us out of the mud pit but then just leave us there with nothing else. And if you're not allowing it to completely transform your life, I think you're missing out on the full effects of the true active grace of God. I devalue the grace of God in my own life by not allowing it to radically change me. Grace provides us with the essential tools to avoid the mud pit again. We experience God's grace and from that experience we are changed and transformed into a new creation. and We are put on a path to live differently from our former self. So, our last point this morning is just looking at the last couple of words here at the end of four, uh, verse 14. He had said, To purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So, our final point this morning is this God's grace compels me to good works. Now, these good works are done out of a sincere love for God and others in obedience to his word. This is how grace works. It saves us and then completely transforms us by training and motivating us to be godly people. We see Paul uses the strong words here, zealous for good works. And in your own reflection, do you often feel zealous or passionate fully devoted to good works for God? Could you rightly describe yourself as a fanatic for good deeds? So it seems that many Christians like to dabble in good deeds, you know, when it's convenient, doesn't come with much sacrifice, or when they don't have anything else they'd rather do at the time. But think, if, if we have been bought out of slavery, of sin, by the blood of our great God, we should be zealous for good deeds. We should be totally devoted to serving Christ through our good works. It's not only that grace makes good works possible by enabling us to do them, but that grace makes them necessary by challenging us to live accordingly. The emphasis is on the necessity, not the mere possibility of good works. So the question that we should ask ourselves is, do good works feel necessary in my life? You might say, well, sure they do, but they know I, I do good things, I'm good to people, I try to do the right thing most of the time, and I believe that. I think we all do try to do the right thing most of the time in our lives. But no, no. The question isn't, do you try to do good works? Maybe the question, if we really want to get deeper into reflection here, maybe we should ask ourselves, have I been so changed by the overwhelming power of the grace of God that I am compelled to my very core to respond by expressing love and grace to others in this world? And not only do you believe it's a good thing to do good works and to live upright, but it is absolutely necessary as a way to be obedient to Christ. It's not just to make ourselves feel good or make others feel good, but that does happen, but it's to be obedient to Christ. So as we've been covering all these many things that God's grace does in our lives, I think um, it's important to also just pause um, and examine what grace is not. Because I think that there are a couple of misconceptions about grace. So the, f- the first one I would highlight here is that grace is not freedom to sin. Do we know that? I hope we do. That grace is not freedom to sin, okay? So if God graciously forgives sin, you might, you might be sitting here asking, like, why, then why struggle for a sin-free life? You may say, I'm good at sinning. God is good at forgiving. It seems like a perfect match, right? But this common mindset presumes that it's God's job to forgive our sin. That he's God. That's like just what he does. But the minute we presume upon grace, it's no longer grace. I think uh, some Christians wrongly think that God's grace means that he just gives out free passes that allow us to continue to sin with just no consequences, right? And then if you, if you ever warn them that their misguided view of sin will result in God's discipline, they just they don't want to hear it. Their mantra becomes, I'm under grace, not law, which really, for them, just means that grace has given them permission for an undisciplined li- life and to live undisciplined living. What really happens is you become entitled to sin because you feel entitled to grace. And in this very quick three-step process, you receive a gift with gratitude, good, you get used to a gift with routine, and then you demand a gift as a right. And I I dare say that this might be a blind spot for many American Christians and one that can have dangerous consequences in your life and in your relationship with the Lord. Because the minute you think you deserve grace, you diminish its power in your life. See, grace makes people grateful, but entitlement strangles out grace. Grace. Galatians five thirteen says it this way says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So Paul here is warning the Galatians not to use their freedom in Christ as an opportunity to selfishly serve the flesh by only doing what feels good. Instead, they should selflessly serve each other in love. I think Paul also makes it probably as clear as he can um, when he says in Romans 5:13, he says this, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. That's clear, right? Okay. He goes on to say, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But grace is not permission to sin. It is the power to overcome sin. We don't view grace simply as this net that will catch us every time we willingly dive headfirst into our sin. We view it as the power given to us by God to overcome our sin. By grace, God forgives sin and transforms sinners into saints and holiness is not a prerequisite for grace. It is a product of grace. Amen for that. Next thing I would highlight that grace is not Grace is not freedom from effort. And I want to make sure that this, this point is clear. the order of this is clear, because I think when we're talking about grace, it can get a little murky when it comes to work works in salvation. So just to be very clear, Ephesians 2.8.9, I'm sure we all know this one. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Okay? So we can't achieve salvation by any of our own efforts. It is God's grace. It is our faith in Him for our salvation. So what gets confusing here then is, so if it's all about grace, then clearly there's no effort needed on on our part, right? So it seems. Um, The Christian author Dallas Willard, I think, put it um, really well. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, right? And just a little spoiler here, uh, the next chapter in Titus, um, he further lays out a list of ways to live So he says to be submissive to authority, to be obedient, to speak evil of no one, no quarreling, to be gentle, and to be ready for every good work. Does that sound like a life free of effort? No. Does that sound like the Christian walk is just being saved by Jesus and then just sitting back and enjoying the fruits of his labor for the rest of your life? Absolutely not. So let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that because Christ was willing to do the work and the heavy lifting for us, that we are just completely void of responsibility. Because think, do you have issues submitting to authority, whether that's a boss, church leaders, uh, the government? Um, Do you have a problem quarreling? Do Do you just find yourself... Arguing too often with too many people? Or do you just simply lack gentleness? Because if any of these things rings true, and you may be saved by the blood of Jesus, but I got to tell you, you're really falling short of the responsibilities of a Christ follower that is very clearly laid out to us in God's word. Church, we should work hard We should strive and toil, but we should desire to do so. We don't drag our feet into hard work, right? We don't do this for grace, but because of grace. Because of the gospel, we aren't motivated by guilt, but by gratitude. And if you've experienced this, you know that the gospel is the greatest Motivating power in the world, it encourages followers of Christ to love their neighbor, to seek justice, to share the gospel, to be obedient to Christ. That is the life of someone who's experienced true saving grace. The last thing I'll highlight here, grace grace is not filling the gap. So what does that mean? So you may have heard the phrase, do your best and God will do the rest. Have you heard that one? Well, the implication in this is that we can pay off part, part of our debt. Now, here I was just talking about that we're not free from effort, but we can tend to get that little twisted, right? That what, what is our effort accomplishing? We believe that we can, we start to believe that we can do the work necessary to cover us up to a certain point, and then when we've just maxed out, we call on God just to, to take care of what's left over, right? But true grace is knowing that we can do nothing apart from God. That he brought grace to fill us completely. To pay off the whole of our debt. The problem with the, the grace fills the gaps thinking is that it vastly underestimates the extent of our sin. So when you align with the biblical teaching that sin touches every aspect of our being, then you also realize that grace isn't just needed to polish off your moral achievements. Grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. And the more honest you are about sin, the more your heart will rejoice in grace. So uh, Blythe and I have four awesome kids, and uh, our oldest, McKay, is seven and a half. I didn't know she was going to be sitting in here, so this, she's loving this. But she's an incredible girl. She is so smart and compassionate. And a couple of years ago, we had a reason to celebrate in our, in our house because um, McKay made the decision to trust in Jesus as her uh, savior. And yes, amen for that. It was a really special moment for us. So I, I had the opportunity to pray with her and Blythe got to talk with her about what this means for her life here on earth and for her eternal life in heaven. And man, I'm telling you, she couldn't have been more excited about this. She just had a big smile on her face and she was like, I am so excited that I got saved. And the next day, um, I just loved watching her um, run up to people just really excitingly uh, just tell people about this, this big news. And I thought to myself, wow, like we have really taken a huge step. Like what a life. We were going to live with our daughter. Sorry, McKay, I'm going to keep telling the story. So later, <laughs> later that morning, we were then very graciously and kindly informed that McKay had told someone that she didn't need to listen to her teacher because her daddy works here, which, <laughs> I maybe mean, I was like, no. Now, mind you, this is not a, a rule or thought that would have been taught in our home. Um, so through just some humbling, some explaining and then seeking forgiveness. Always made well. It was totally fine. But it really was a great teaching moment. And honestly, I think the timing couldn't have been better for me as well. Because here I was at what felt like very much the peak of this mountain with my daughter. And I believe in that moment, that at her young age even, that her trust in Jesus was and still is very real and genuine. But of course, there's still a lot of training and teaching And work to be done, right? Our daughter is still a young child. There's still bad attitudes and talking back and sinful behavior. Uh, That doesn't even go away for most adults, right? Um, All of this didn't disappear that Saturday night we prayed. Because training is a process. And over the course of her life, my daughter will have to learn and be trained and taught to say no to those sinful responses. And as her love for Jesus grows, her heart will be trained to say yes to self-control. And in doing so, her desire for good works will increase. This is a lifelong pursuit. I think sometimes we, we feel like we can just coast on the effort and progress we've made. Now, I, would remember, I remember I had gotten to a point at the beginning of last year, I was pretty happy with where I was at physically. And then when I had to initially stop going to the gym because of COVID, uh, do you think my, I just instantly like, lost all strength and just gained a bunch of weight back like the minute I stopped? No, of course not. But the longer I wasn't engaging my body with the daily regimen it was accustomed to, my development slowly began to fade. And the longer I was away from my training, the more my desire for those old unhealthy habits returned. So those sleeves of Oreos slowly started to creep back into my life. My desire to run, which was already pretty low, decreased even more so at that point. My name was still on the gym membership. I still had access. That didn't go away. I didn't lose my membership. But I wasn't committing myself to the training and strengthening. I wasn't experiencing the full power of what I had access to. If you have experienced God's saving grace in your life, what has your response been? Listen, we don't have to do the saving work that's already been done for us. Praise God, Jesus did the work for us. He did that work that we should have had to do, but how have you responded to that? What work, what training, what effort has the world seen from you, has God seen from you in your life? Have you been training to say no to worldly passions, to an ungodly life? Are you passionately pursuing a life of self-control and God-glorifying obedience? Or is your name on that membership, but you have barely stepped into the gym for any training? I don't do good works to save me, but to be faithful to the one who has saved me. we are obedient out of complete love and devotion to God. Through our experience of true saving grace, we rightly respond to the sacrificial, overwhelming act of love Christ displayed on the cross by not only receiving and believing, but actively living out that grace in our lives. As I said at the beginning this morning, I respond to God's saving grace by training in godly obedience. That's how grace works. It saves us, and then it trains and motivates us to be godly people in this present age, zealous for good works, as we look for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. So, do you have the assurance of salvation in your life? Have you seen and heard of the grace that has appeared through Jesus Christ and received this saving grace? If so, have you been training? Have you been actively responding to this saving grace by training to cut sin and worldly passions from your life? Have you said no to the ungodliness that is at this very moment trying to infiltrate your life and passionately say yes to a life in obedience to God. If your name is on that membership, then it's time to respond. It's time to get to work. Don't waste another moment to respond to God's grace. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your saving grace appearing in your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for offering that gift to us, even when we didn't deserve it. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has still not put their trust in you, believing that you have paid the debt that we owed, dying on the cross and raising from the dead, I pray that you would speak to those people right now. God, I pray that that those who do believe who are Christ's followers today would live a changed life. That their response to the gospel would be one of obedience to your word. That it would be an obedience to how you have called us to live. To say no to our sin. and To say yes to living a life of self-control and godliness. compel us, motivate us to respond to your grace to know that it is not our work to be done it's through Christ it's not for our own glory it's to give the glory back to you God thank you for saving us but God we want to see transformation in our hearts and our lives thank you for laying it out so clearly for us that we can be taught, that we can grow in love and devotion and obedience to you. God, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.